It was a Friday night and I, I was just leaving a meeting. I was going to pick up his children. Um, yeah, I just saw headlights coming at me and swerved and overcorrected and never made contact with that car. The last thing I do remember was hearing the Lifeline helicopter being loaded into that. Was it clear at that point that you had lost your arm? No, I had no idea. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Today we are speaking with Jess Troxell. Jess is a licensed clinical social worker with a master's degree in social work from Indiana University. She works as a therapist specializing in trauma, and she is currently developing an EMDR protocol for complex trauma. For listeners unfamiliar with EMDR, it is an innovative and effective trauma treatment that involves using bilateral stimulation to allow an individual to access parts of the brain that are often difficult to activate with traditional talk therapy. In addition to being a clinician, she is an adjunct professor in the School of Social Work at Indiana University teaching in their master's program. Jess has two sons, Zach, who is 22, and Taylor, who is 20, and she currently cares for her 14-year-old nephew, Dalen. She shares her life with her partner, Scott, and their two cats, Dusty and Hazel. Today on Badass, Jess shares her story of losing both her home to a flood and her arm in a car accident within four months of each other. At the time, Jess was raising Zach and Taylor before losing her home and her ability to function. Today we explore the devastation of these losses, but also their transformative power, as Jess harnessed the deep strength recovery required and then continued to use that strength to change her life. Jess, welcome to Badass. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Let's begin in 2008. The flood that destroyed your home occurred in June. Can you give us a sense of what your life was like in the months leading up to the flood? Yeah, um, at that time I was a um, supervisor in a factory, uh, loved my job. I I often talked to my friends and family, my partner, and say, I really wish you would have known me back then because I really felt like a badass, which is ironic because this is the name of the podcast. Um, and. I had a really great supervisor and mentor there. His name is Daryl Kelsey, and he saw potential in me that I didn't see. Um, in the years before that, I had, you know, succumbed to substance use and domestic violence relationships that were very toxic and harmful. Um, and I was pulling myself out of those situations. And uh, he encouraged me to get my GED because he saw, like I said, potential in my skills or whatever he saw. I'm not, I'm not real sure. Um, so many, many, many conversations later, I finally did that. I finally signed up for classes at Broadview and um, 
went and did night classes to get my GED. I was 27. Um, and you were working full time, taking care of two kids and going to night classes and getting your GED. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I, like, I do feel like you were already a badass. <laughs> Thank you. And um, yeah, so I did that and I took the test and um, my teacher there, Susan Clendening, um, was phenomenal. She's still a huge part of my life today. And the day the flood happened or when the flood happened, I didn't have my test. You know, I didn't know if I passed yet or not on my GED, um, but I was signed up to go to classes at Ivy Tech. Um, and the day after the flood, uh, we went to the mobile home because I was here and it was 2008, the recession, all the things, right? And so I had this mobile home in Martinsville where I could just go pay lot rent and save money. Yeah, and just to give the listeners some context who aren't from Indiana, there was a massive flooding event in Indiana mm -hmm. that affected about half the state. Mm -hmm. And this, the flooding was absolutely devastating. Mm -hmm. It was eight mm -hmm. to 10 feet of water mm -hmm. inside of people's homes. Mm -hmm. And Martinsville, Indiana was one of the very hardest hit communities. Mm -hmm. And the flooding there, I, I believe in that trailer park, because weirdly, I was actually a crisis mental health counselor who went <laughs> to that same trailer park and talked to people after that event. I don't think you and I ever talked. Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember uh, there was total devastation for mm -hmm. a lot of those homes. Mm -hmm. I mean, to completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was devastating. I wasn't home when the flood, like when it started happening, I was actually in Bloomington at work on a Saturday. And um, I believe it was a Saturday. Yeah. Um, and so I was hearing on the radio that there were evacuations happening and I was trying to just do my job, but also something kept telling me um, to go home, to go to Martinsville. So I did, and it was really horrifying. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, and I've located my kids and my partner at that time. Um, they had been uh, evacuated by fire truck. My boys remember like the fire truck coming to get them, um, but it destroyed the home. We, um, you know, it was pretty devastating. I remember the next day, kind of going back to the GED, the next day walking um, into the home and seeing the devastation. Um, not, I didn't even have my belongings in there yet. Things were in storage. Right, because you had just purchased the home. No, no, right? no, no, no. I got that actually. <laughs> I bought the mobile home with the money that I got from FEMA when I was hit with a tornado in Martinsville in 2002. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, the one of the images that stick out to me at that time was the the deck in front of the mobile home was washed away and my kids bike were underneath it and you could see them kind of sticking out and 
that image right there was just the hardest for me because it wasn't just me, right? It was me and my kids and um and for some reason I checked the mail. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm not gonna be here, so I'm gonna check the mail. And inside was my um diploma information from passing my GED. Holy cow. Yeah. What a both and moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so that's where, you know, two thousand eight um started off really well like i was making um making changes right mm -hmm. in my life and um really slowing down to recognize that you know there i could do more i could be more i could give my kids more um but that like stopped me in my tracks again right yes <laughs> um and so the months after that was just really difficult um the relationship i was in was not safe um and not really knowing where to go i felt really stuck yeah right where like, did you guys end up after that temporarily we were in student housing they placed us in student housing and then we rented a place we found a place to rent mm -hmm. yeah but without any of your belongings, I would imagine. Yeah, there was a lot that was lost. Um, the hardest parts were the pictures, my kids' baby books, things that hold such sentimental value that you can't replace. You know, that is what I universally heard when I was going door to door after that flood mm -hmm. was people, it wasn't the, you know, expensive furniture or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the electronics, it was the pictures. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. the, the first pair of baby booties that mm. their child had worn. Yeah. That was the stuff that yeah. was so hard to lose. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So yes. as the months are going on and you're starting to get your feet back under you, mm -hmm. then you get in a car accident. I do. I was attending 12-step meetings. I was in recovery. Um, I I was really surrounded by people at the time of the wreck. Um, I only started really going to meetings in August. I believe it was in August. And <clears throat> so I had a sponsor, right? And I had really leaned into her. Uh, but she, at the time of the accident, when I was in the hospital, her and her partner at the time, that's who took care of Zach and Taylor when mm. I was in the hospital. Um, and I can remember, well, let me back up a little bit. So it was a Friday night and I, I was just leaving a meeting and my sister was with me. We went to an Al-Anon family thing and um, I was going to pick up uh, the person that I was with at the time, his children, because my kids were visiting with their dad. And um, yeah, I just saw headlights coming at me and swerved and overcorrected and never made contact with that car. It was my first and only car accident. <laughs> um, and it happened really fast. Yeah. And so what what were those kind of moments of coming into awareness 
right after the accident? Did you stay conscious the whole time? Were you mm-hmm. knocked out? I was conscious. Um, I think maybe for maybe a split moment, I might have, but I, it's kind of trigger warning, I guess I would say. It's kind of heavy. I remember saying, I can't believe this is happening. And my sister fell on me because it tipped on the driver's side. I was driving and I had no idea what had happened to me. And I do remember like my head bouncing off the road Hmm. and you know, the the blue train trussle in between second and third street. Yeah. That's where it stopped right underneath there. And so it was on the highway. <laughs> so a lot of damage was done pretty quickly. Yeah. And my body went into shock. I, I was awake. I remember everything, but my vision recollection is very foggy. Mm-hmm. The last thing I do remember was hearing the Lifeline helicopter being loaded into that. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I don't remember a whole lot for a while. Yeah. Um, But then life got really hard after that. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, Well, I was I was in Methodist for almost a month um, and I had to be able to walk the stairs in order to leave. (laughs) Um, I I don't remember a whole lot in the hospital there are some things that i do remember like my hand as i was mentioning mentioning was very damaged um they had to do special types of treatments to remove decaying flesh and stuff that was Mm. in there and remove like suction it out i had like a tube in my stump that did the same thing yeah and your stump, because I don't think that we've really gone into the details about, you know, when you mm. you were lifelined. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Was it clear at that point that you had lost your arm? No, okay. I had no idea. Yeah. So what what was that process like? How did you, you know, first realize that that had happened? Was it slow? I honestly don't remember when I knew that or Mm -hmm. what that was like but Mm -hmm. what I do remember was one the first time that I remember my kids coming to see me I was really worried about them being afraid of me yeah um I was in it I had you know I had a lot more damage than just my arm I had a fractured neck and my you know all this was completely ripped out in the back of my head and my arm and hand mm-hmm. I mean I was a wreck mm-hmm. <laughs> um so when they came to see me um I just started calling my stump stumpy <laughs> and this is stumpy and uh it just sort of stuck and it's it's like its own persona you know and its own yeah I don't know well um, that just it reminds me of Kind of one of the things that I think is so fascinating about resilience is the way in which it's oftentimes for, you know, parents, it's our children that mm-hmm. bring it out in us first, right? Mm-hmm. Like your desire to have your children not be afraid mm-hmm. sort of 
caused you to find a way to begin to make sense of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I don't really remember a whole lot of that visit, you know. Of course, yeah. The early days are really foggy for me. Of course, I was, you know, on all kinds of medications. Yeah. Um, And probably still in a state of shock. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. So when did you first sort of feel like you were really coming into awareness, you know, really getting a handle on what had happened to you? I would say probably towards the end of my stay at Methodist. Part of my story involves sexual violence in my partnership mm. and including in the hospital. And so that was very difficult, but I was super reliant and dependent. Oh, Jess, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, right. So I would imagine not only dealing with what had happened to your body, but this ongoing stress must have made it so hard to mm-hmm. to really be in your body and be able to be super aware. Yeah, and there was not a whole lot of like wanting to be in my body, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, I was on a lot of medication. I mean, I I was on morphine and fentanyl and muscle relaxers and Lyrica uh, for phantom pains. I mean, it was really bad. Like mm-hmm. I can remember like having to be sat up every day because I would have to take a muscle relaxer first and then be sat up because mm-hmm. I could not. It was so painful. I forgot where what you asked, where I was heading. Like all these things are like flooding in, you know, I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about any of this stuff, so. Yeah, I think I think I was asking about kind of when you really did start to kind of take stock of Mm -hmm. what had happened Mm -hmm. um, and the impact of that. Yeah, and and it was towards the end of my stay there and going home, um, I felt very fortunate that you know, people in the rooms were surrounding us. You know, people were bringing food and coming to clean and do laundry. And it was really overwhelming, mm-hmm. right, at the same time, right? And and the amount of appointments a week that I had um, was overwhelming. There wasn't a whole lot of space to really feel anything. There was a lot of anger and a lot of rage. Mm-hmm. Um, and but i but i was very fortunate to have people helping Mm -hmm. um and i don't know where i would be today if i hadn't found my way into recovery right and into healing and to a support system um yeah yeah, that's interesting. I feel like it's a theme that is emerging in every single interview that we do, <laughs> that people are really talking about community mm. and how, I mean, undeniably important community was in their stories. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm really grateful that you had found a community before all of this happens because it sounds like your partner was not supportive. I mean, there were points in which that they were, right? Um, and I can separate out. It's not exactly fair 
for me to do that, mm -hmm. right? But that's just part of my journey and part of my story. Mm -hmm. And it definitely, it definitely impacts the relationship that I have in my life today, right? That that experience contributed to a, com a, a chunk of time in my 10 year partnership that is beautiful and amazing that I missed out on because I could not live with him. Uh -huh. I did not feel safe in my body too. Yeah. And not because of him, right? But because of my trauma. Right. Yeah, I get that. I do. I'm also a survivor of domestic violence and it's really difficult mm -hmm. to uh, intertwine things like finances with someone again anything that makes you feel like you might become dependent mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I remember even this is horrible for my my partner but he he took it like a champ I remember even saying to him before I allowed him to move in I need to know that you have a plan where you can leave immediately if I tell you you need to leave mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it's amazing uh, what it takes to feel safe after going through something like that yeah absolutely and there was a point in time where I moved closer to him because we live in two different counties even we live an hour apart from each other like how much of a trauma reaction is that right <laughs> to have that separation so that I felt safe but yeah it's um it's been really healing to be with him and in the early days I know that, that I was not easy to deal with and I, I, I moved into my own place um, closer to him um, and we didn't live together, but we spent a lot of time together and I felt, I can feel it building in my body right now, right? Mm -hmm. Being so attuned to my body, I can feel the anxiety of like feeling suffocated, mm -hmm. right? And I ran, <laughs> I was like, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going back to Bloomington. Um, and you weren't ready. No, no. And and he stuck with me through it all, through it all. And he's been a huge part of my journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of brings me to the next thing that I was curious about, kind of going back in time to, you know, as you're coming through all of this, you know, you've gotten out of the hospital, you've gotten an apartment and you're sort of in that first year but I'm just curious about kind of um, my sense of you the first time that you and I talked mm. was that this accident really was a catalyst mm -hmm. for a lot of things in your life to change. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious about that process, you know, of kind of like when you began to move your life in a different direction after this and... Mm. kind of what you were discovering within yourself after this. Mm -hmm. I would say that where that shift happened, that was probably in 2011 when I moved out and into my own place. So that was three years after the accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I was horrified. And it was my choice, but it was also a result of him cheating on me during yeah. that time. So not only was um, I experiencing what I was experiencing in that, but I was also, I mean, it was 
an added layer of what the hell yeah <laughs> you know yeah um and i was scared because i still even three years after couldn't put my own bra on without help um and so it was just me and my boys and our apartment that was a really hard time a really hard transition i was horrified i didn't know if i could do everything on my own mm -hmm. and how old were your boys at the time 11 and 12 maybe yeah yeah so, yeah mm -hmm. not real old no yeah no. yeah and traumatized right mm -hmm. <laughs> but when i when I knew I was going to be okay was the day that I put my own bra on by myself. Yeah. And things sh shifted from there for me. Tell me more about that shift and, and what started to occur to you to do. Well, I, I decided to go to school. So to kind of go back, uh, my first semester at Ivy Tech was nine months after the wreck. Wow. And so I did a semester and a half and took two years off to have reconstructive surgery on my hand because I had a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so in 2012, I went back to Ivy Tech and graduated in 2014 um, with an associate degree in human services. And being a high school dropout, it was really amazing to be able to have my name read and walk across the stage and for my boys to see that. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, I mean, things just continued from there, right? Like I, can, I started to put or allow the people that were good for me in my life and, and not let the people that were harming me and, and removing that. Yes, yes. Because you not only were healing from a physical injury, I mean, that sounds like you were healing from a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, of course, these accidents cause trauma, but on top of that, violent relationships, you know, I imagine there's probably even, you know, more things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm curious about how this recovery process and how the recovering from trauma piece started to enter into your life? Well, that didn't really start until about seven years after. I mm -hmm. mean, people would say, you know, you really should talk to somebody, you should go to therapy, you know, all the things. But I was too busy. I was too busy and we know as therapists what that means, right? Yes. <laughs> We're for trauma. Um, but that caught up with me because after I graduated from Ivy Tech and I started my first semester at IU in the School of Social Work, I made it 10 weeks into the first semester there um, and basically just face planted in trauma. Like I could no longer get up. I could no longer function. I, I just, I couldn't, you yeah. know? And I ended up taking a medical withdrawal, which is so, you know, the internal critic and the, you know, all the things. But I took a year off and I got into therapy. Um, and and I knew that I had to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and we were kind of chatting right before about, you know, the importance of ethical practice and self-care, right? 
And at that time, I was a CASA and I was really struggling um, towards the end there with like being able to show up for those kids. Yeah, right? and just for our listeners that don't know what a CASA is, a CASA is a court-appointed special advocate who really gets involved with families who are experiencing you know, uh, neglect and abuse in the home mm -hmm. and then advocates for the child, mm -hmm. um, making recommendations about where the child should live and what treatment the child might need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so I recognize that taking on um, you know, higher ed, right? School and trying to really do the things that I wanted to do, like give back and just like show up for others. But I quickly realized that I wasn't taking care of myself and it was seven years of not taking care of myself. Yeah. It finally caught up with me. Yeah. And it was really hard. I was, I was driving out of county to go see the kids and it was a Friday. My accident happened on a Friday. It was in October when, when my wreck happened in October and yeah, I, I called my CASA supervisor and I was like, I, I can't, I can't do this. Good. Yeah. 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 So your body was giving you some pretty clear signals <laughs> yeah. that it was, it was time. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that um, sometimes we need a chunk of time. Mm -hmm. You know, I mm -hmm. think we have to get to a place of feeling even a little bit safe and a little bit stable mm -hmm. to be ready mm -hmm. to do that work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so then I I just dropped everything. <laughs> I went to therapy and that was hard. Yeah. And I know there's still a ton more of work for me to do, but I needed to focus on the present, right? The yeah. present trauma. So I did. And and then I went back to school the next year and then I went on to earn my master's degree and graduated in 2018. So within 10 years of the accident, um, high school dropout to master's degree and knowing like I needed to do those things, I needed to rebuild a life, but also now that I'm a trauma therapist, right? And I, I see um, that that's an adaptive strategy and it was needed at the time. But now I'm ready to like slow down and really care for me, right? Mind, body, and brain. Yeah, it is interesting how sometimes um, we find that we're really drawn to caring for others and helping others heal. And it can be that, you know, you know, it's more comfortable to be so focused on others mm -hmm. rather than to be so focused on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's something that a lot of healers kind of grapple with mm -hmm. those moments mm -hmm. where we recognize, you know, there might be a reason that I, I've been so focused on others and not paying attention to mm -hmm. myself. There might be some stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's okay, right? It's, we all go through that if you're a, a, a helper in any way, right? Yeah. Not just a therapist, right? Um, but when you when you recognize that and you learn that, and, and then if you don't do something different, 
then that's on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to be able to accept the responsibility of those choices in practice if you neglect to care for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you think your experience of healing uh, in therapy impacts your work with clients? Well, I mean, I feel like I really, I have a visible disability, right? And so sometimes I worry that that might be a barrier, but it's never been a barrier, right? It's been a bridge, Mm -hmm. right, to connecting and being able to have empathy and hold space for healing. Um, And in recent months, that has looked very different than my early days of practice, right? Because I am being intentional every day now of caring for me and my body and my mind, right? Mm -hmm. The whole person. Um, And so that looks so much different and so much healthier and it feels amazing right? Because I can show up and be with others and their trauma and their hardship. And because I am intentional about my own self-care, it really has reduced burnout, compassion fatigue, all the things that I really struggled with early on in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> and it leads to the having, um, give zero fucks attitude sometimes. Sorry for the f bomb. No, it's okay. Uh, in, in the sense that, you know, I have to prioritize me in order to show up for other people. Right. Yeah. And being able to share that with, with conviction when I'm sitting with people mm-hmm. and bring myself as a human in the room and not just as a professional. Mm-hmm. And I think our clients really do follow our lead. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that they can kind of intuit Mm -hmm. if we're taking care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's really good to model that Mm -hmm. for people, you know. Yeah. And I think that in our culture and our society, self-care is, you know, through the lens of the privileged. Mm -hmm. And even myself right now, I can't take a vacation. Right. Right. Yeah. And and so recognizing what what is self-care on different levels. Mm-hmm. Right. And sometimes that means just getting up. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that means taking a walk. Sometimes that means being present with your cup of tea or mm-hmm. coffee and just really being with yourself. Mm-hmm. can go a long way, right? Yeah. 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 Self-care is so much more about tuning into your body and mm-hmm. figuring out what it needs, yeah. which could be so many different things. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you're kind of on to even, even bigger things uh, these days. You're... You're working um, on developing an EMDR protocol mm-hmm. and kind of getting more into some of the academic elements of our profession. Yeah. So I, in my own growth and learning um, 
And in my practice, recognizing that, you know, the standard protocol as it stands for EMDR is not always advantageous for people who have complex trauma or for clinicians that are learning, right? Learning about themselves and their practice and taking the standard protocol with complex trauma and wondering, why are we stuck? Why aren't we making movement here? Why, why when we're resourcing our body, we're shutting down? Um, and I quickly recognize, especially after taking a deep, exciting, thrilling, mind-blowing dive into polyvagal theory, um, it has consumed my life since February. And taking that learning and applying it in sessions just with some simple strategies has been completely transformative for some of my clients with complex trauma. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with polyvagal theory, could you just share a little bit about what that is? I will do my best. <laughs> yeah. Um, polyvagal theory is a theory based in neuroscience, and it was developed by Stephen Porges, who in like 1994 was developed in understanding the de- defense mechanisms in animals, mammals, right? And so that has been being developed over the last 40 years and it's starting to in the last recent years hit the clinical world and and with humans right and Mm -hmm. understanding how our autonomic nervous system functions right and what role that has in our trauma what role that has in our healing what role that has in our relationships because we can only heal in relationship. Mm-hmm. Polyvagal theory emphasizes that, you know, there's we function out of safety or protection. Mm-hmm. And depending on our dominant state of functioning, which a lot of us, I believe, function in protective states. Um, and when, when we are in a protective state, our body transforms and our middle ear muscles turn off and we don't hear social conversations. We only hear like cues for threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and other parts of our body, we lose access to cognitive resourcing. So if you are with a client who is dysregulated and functioning in a protective state, CBT is not gonna work for them right now. Right. And right. so it's really shining light on the somatic practices Um, and body-based work that uh, is so desperately needed to understand trauma, to understand healing. Mm -hmm. You know, when when I hit on something for me as a therapist that feels like it's like a key that I just unlock so much, Mm -hmm. it oftentimes I kind of have a moment where I sort of reflect back on my own life and Mm -hmm. think about my own experience through the the lens, lens. Yeah, right? absolutely. I'm curious if you had a moment like that with polyvagal theory where you, like, you learned about it and you were like, oh my God. Yeah, from the moment, from the moment. So I learned about it over a year ago, but I just didn't have the capacity to really dive into learning and reading, right? I just, I was functioning very much in a protected state, right? Um, so survival was the main thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but once I was safe enough in my body and my work environment felt safer um, I was able to take a dive in it and then I started applying it to clients and then 
over time, I was like, damn, this is really helping me understand the impacts of my trauma experiences on me, but also on my children. Yeah, tell me more about that. Well, you know, going back to the wreck, it's I'm able to see um, even their trauma prior to all that. I mean, being exposed to domestic violence, you know, neglect by me, to be frank, right? I was neglectful in a lot of ways in my parenting because of the environments in which we lived. Right, because you were trying to protect yourself from your lived experience (laughs) by you know, softening it with substance use and right. and probably dissociation. Yeah, absolutely. And so being able to see the continuation of those traumas build up with my kids. And for Zach, he was, uh, he's a Riley baby. So I was 19 when I had him. And within seven days, 10 days, he was on a hormone because he was born without a thyroid gland. Um, and he also has hydrocephalus. And wow. so he's had, he has a long history of medical trauma. And so being able to take polyvagal theory, but also relational cultural theory and understand the intersects there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of safety in relationships and healing in relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not able to be what my kids needed. And they were so young, right? And we already had a trauma history together Mm -hmm. that it impacted our attachment. Yeah, you were all hurting together. Yeah, yeah. And so only recently, um, my other son, Taylor, lost, tragically lost his best friend to an accidental shooting a few weeks ago, back in May, who was a central person in his life by way of my sponsor, whose partner was his uncle. Mm -hmm. Um, And so seeing the the impacts of trauma rippling through the lens of polyvagal, through the lens of relational cultural theories, I recognize that even still today, my kids seek types of supports in their social circles because they had to do that. And that was an adaptive strategy for them. In order to survive, they had to seek safety elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so today in our present life is a shift, right? Where I can slow down and I can focus on what do I need for me? And what do I need in relationship with my kids? Mm-hmm. And what do we need in healing? Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of where where it has led me today. And and not internalizing that when Taylor lost his friend, I I was unable to make contact with him for like two weeks before I could give him a hug. Mm-hmm. But that's not, you know, it's, I so desperately wanted to, so yeah. desperately, but he was with the people he was, he was electing, right, mm-hmm. to meet his needs. And I have to respect that. Yeah. And I show up for my kids in the best ways that I know how and the best ways that I can with the intention of healing our attachment traumas. Yeah. And I think you make such an important point in that it's not too late. You know, when they 
grow up, you know, your, your kids are both in early adulthood. Uh, I think sometimes we, we worry that if we can't meet all of our children's needs when they're growing up, that, you know, once they leave the home, like that's it, it's Mm -hmm. too late. Mm -hmm. But there's an evolution in that parenting relationship and it continues. We continue to have a parenting relationship with our children, even when they're adults. Yeah. And a lot of healing can happen. Absolutely. And I feel incredibly empowered in the same ways that I see my clients, right? Because I know and understand my own body, the neuroscience of my body and in relationships. And I know that those um, pathways can be created new Mm -hmm. with intentional practice. Yeah. That's really hopeful. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, absolutely. And and I see that in my relationship with Dalen too, right? Mm-hmm. My nephew. Um, and while we've had some bumps in the road, we're still p- pulling through. We're, we're getting along pretty well. Yeah. For the most part. <laughs> yeah. And Daylin is your nephew who you're guardian over mm-hmm. um, because there was some trauma. Yeah. Yes. His mom died from an overdose in 2019. And my brother is his dad and has developed um, a debilitating condition, mental health condition, um, psychosis, um, and unable to care for him safely. Mm-hmm. So I imagine this framework that you've developed to help understand yourself, you know, through Mm -hmm. your work Mm -hmm. and your education probably also helps you understand your family. Absolutely. And I know they're annoyed with me as all get out right now, especially around mindfulness, because that for me has been, um, well, one, it's scientifically proven to be effective in self-care. And two, it supports polyvagal relational cultural in terms of creating new pathways and new relationships, right? And understanding relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think when we understand that we have so many physiological reactions, mm-hmm. it we begin to um, feel less hurt by the times in which people haven't been able to, you know, show up for us, be kind to us, mm-hmm. uh, because we are also recognizing that they were having a lot of physiological reactions as well. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. You know there's, there are times where it's so difficult to access mm-hmm. what we need to, yeah. to show up in the way that we want to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that does help with just how you put into context that period of time where mm-hmm. you couldn't be with your kids in the way you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's really powerful when I'm sitting with other people in session and sharing, you know, how how this intersects in my life and how um, how I see it as healing in my life. Hmm. Yeah. I think there is uh, something that is so intimate uh, when a therapist is able to harness their own experience and share a little bit of it mm-hmm. and uh, really allow that person sitting in front of them 
to feel as if they're with someone in something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I'm teaching, I whether it's in session or in the classroom and talking about empathy and what what is empathy and what is what does it mean to have empathy with someone versus empathy for someone. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference there. Yeah. Yeah. Jess, it has been so wonderful to talk to you. You Thank truly you. have a story that is like a phoenix, you know, rising from the ashes. That's ironic. <laughs> It's ironic that you say that because I I have a colleague, Ron Masters, in the community developed the Phoenix Protocol, and that was one of my first publications. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming and sharing it with us today. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, you're a badass for (laughs) sure. (laughs) I'm working at it, working at it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Hello, dear listeners. Today we are introducing a segment I am calling Behind the Curtain. In this segment, I will explain some of the emerging theories in the field of mental health that are shaping the way therapists are approaching their work. You will get a peek behind the curtain into the theoretical reasons why your therapist is always going on about your nervous system or your self-talk or your attachment wounds. We will look at some of the research behind these theories and how the science behind them is evolving. Today on Behind the Curtain, we are looking at polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory can be a little intimidating at first. It has a lot of big words like ventral vagal and neuroception, and it can feel pretty confusing even to a therapist if you just Google it. I'm going to attempt to break polyvagal theory down into something more digestible. So let's dive in. Polyvagal theory is based on research that Stephen Porges has done on the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a nerve that begins in our brain and travels down the back of our body along the inside of our spine, looping its way into our gut and attaching itself to all of our vital organs, ending in our digestive system. The vagus nerve controls our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of our nervous system that is usually associated with slowing down, relaxing, digesting, connecting, mostly good stuff, right? However, that is just one side of the parasympathetic nervous system, the ventral vagal portion. There is another place in our parasympathetic nervous system that can be activated by extreme stress. When that part of our nervous system gets activated, it causes us to freeze. People often describe this as suddenly not being able to move. The phrase, he was like a deer in the headlights, describes freeze. This section of the nervous system is called the dorsal parasympathetic. I know, these words... They are a mouthful, but bear with me. (laughs) There is another branch of the nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system. And that is the part of your nervous system that comes online when you are under threat or just really excited. Most of us have heard the term fight or flight when our body is getting signals from the sympathetic nervous system to either get aggressive or get out of there. The sympathetic nervous system gets a bad rap 
While fight or flight can be a bitch, life without any sympathetic nervous system activation would be really boring. Since the vagus nerve controls the parasympathetic nervous system, it can also impact whether or not we are in fight or flight because we toggle between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. So when we are in fight or flight, if we can stimulate the vagus nerve, it can pull us back into a calm place. Our body in all of its wisdom will do that for us if we have been in fight or flight for too long, or we realize that fighting or fleeing is not an option. Unfortunately, where our body tends to put us is in the freeze place, which is not where we want to be unless we truly are in extreme danger and need to dissociate to survive whatever is happening to us. So the idea behind polyvagal theory is that we can actually work with the vagus nerve to help us get to the calm place in our nervous system, the ventral vagal place. We can do this in different ways. There are some physical techniques. You can check out YouTube for guidance. There are a ton of videos about this. And there are also observational techniques that have to do with observing our shifts in and out of the parts of our nervous system. When we notice what happens just before we go into fight, flight, or freeze, we have a better chance of catching ourselves and doing something calming to stay out of those states. The observation piece also has to do with something called neuroception. Without being consciously aware of it, we are always scanning our environment for threat. The more trauma someone has experienced, the more unconscious environmental triggers for threat are present. Polyvagal theory teaches us how to notice neuroception and notice what was in our environment when we went into a reaction to threat to help us better understand how to work with our bodies in deactivating these triggers. For people who have been exploding or freezing for years and for whom have suffered in their relationships and jobs because of it, polyvagal theory can feel like a lifeline. The ability to gain some control over these responses or at least understand what they are about can be very liberating. To end this segment, I want to teach you one simple breathing technique to help stimulate the ventral vagal part of your nervous system, which may help you feel calm if you are in fight, flight, or freeze. Now, I know that you probably weren't expecting to do a breathing exercise right now, so you may be in a place where you can't, but if you are in a place where you can, just try it. It'll be fun. Okay, so what we're gonna do first is I want you to just start to pay attention to your breath. You don't have to make it any length. You don't have to do anything special. Just notice the way it feels for your breath to come into your body and then out of your body. And then try to make your breath just a little bit deeper. Breathing your inhale, bringing it a little bit further into your lungs. And on your exhale, just trying to breathe out a little more air. Now begin to count your breath. Counting on the inhale and the exhale and seeing if you can get your breath to a count of four 
For example, inhale, one, two, three, four. Exhale, one, two, three, four. You're doing great. Okay, now what we're gonna do is we're going to inhale, one, two, three, four, and then we're going to make our exhale to the count of six. So inhale, one, two, three, four, exhale, one, two, three, four, five, six. Inhale, one, two, three, four, exhale, one, two, three, four, five, six. Now release the breath. You're doing great. We're going to do that one more time. And this time, when we do our inhale, we're going to stick to the count of four. And on your exhale, see if you can push it all the way out to eight so that your exhale is twice as long as your inhale. Okay. Exhale and inhale. One, two, three, four. Exhale. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Inhale. One, two, three, four. Exhale. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And release. <sighs> now notice, how do you feel? Do you notice that your shoulders might feel a little looser? Do you notice that when you breathe in and out, that your chest might feel a little looser, like the breath you know, without being forced to be long and deep, just is a little bit deeper? Does the tension that you usually hold in certain parts of your body, is that a little more relaxed? And if so, then congratulations, you have a new tool in your toolbox. Awesome. Good job, folks. Thanks for tuning into Badass today. I wish you well, and check in with us in two weeks for our next episode. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered a lot of his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band Rodeola for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the Badass Team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we've been holed up working on the show. If you have enjoyed this episode of Badass today, please go to our Facebook page, Badass Tales of Resilience, and leave a comment, and be sure to like and follow us. <laughs> <laughs>